Hello, everybody, and welcome to Fifth Week. This is the Maroon Weekly for Fifth Week coming up, and I'm Ruth. I'm Isaac. I'm Ron. And I'm Matthew. And to start us off today, we have Matthew with some stories relating to uh, night owls at UChicago. Yeah. So the most recent in the Night Owls series of philosophical talks was run by professors Anubhav Vasudevan and Tom Pashby. The topic was, does science leave room for philosophy? um, They had two main views. Pashby uh, thinks that philosophy should be used to expand on scientific findings because science can use evidence to prove things that philosophy can't, such as the Big Bang answering the question, does time have a beginning? On the other hand, Vasudevan believes that science and philosophy are almost entirely different and don't really have much overlap beyond to the casual viewer. You also have a story about the coronavirus outbreak, right? Right. So the university is closing its centers in Beijing and Hong Kong until at least February 17th, thanks to the coronavirus outbreak. In addition, uh, for those of you that were going to go on some of the upcoming treks to Shanghai and Hangzhou, unfortunately, that is no longer going to be happening. Those have been canceled thanks to the potential danger of um, a student catching coronavirus. Could you just tell us a little bit more about the coronavirus, Matt? So coronavirus is actually a family of viruses that contains diseases like the common cold, but this is a novel strain, which means it hasn't been seen in humans previously, and so we haven't actually given it its own name yet. It's a respiratory condition that likely travels between patients through coughing and sneezing, again, similar to the common cold. Uh, Many of the infected actually were thought thought to uh, frequent a meat, fish, and poultry market in Wuhan, China, where the outbreak first occurred. For university members who absolutely must travel to mainland China or Hong Kong, you're asked to register through UChicago's Traveler Service, which facilitates assistance to university members in crisis abroad, or to email this specified address, coronavirusinfo at uchicago.edu, with any questions about travel or programming that could be affected by the closures. Ruth, you've also, you also have a couple of stories relating to university, right? Yeah. And I wanted to start us off with a question. Uh, what's older than the sun and smells like rotten peanut butter? Any guesses? Uh, Dean Boyer. Sick <laughs> 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 <Life> of the mind. <laughs> Turns out it's stardust. Scientists from UChicago and the Field Museum discovered 7.5 billion year old stardust, earning it the title of the oldest solid material on Earth. The stardust comes from a meteorite that fell in Murchison, Australia in 1969. Philip Heck, who is a part-time associate professor of geophysical sciences and a curator at the Field Museum, was lead author on a recent paper which described the analysis on the meteorite. Uh, The grains of dust extracted from the meteorite were primarily between 4.6 and 4.9 billion years old, making them pre-solar, which means that they were around before the formation of the sun, which is only about 4.6 billion years old. Analysis of these grains, as well as the 7.5 billion-year-old dust, will therefore tell us more about how stars formed in our galaxy. To extract the grains of stardust from the meteorite, the scientists crush the meteorite with water to make a paste. Jenica Greer, who is a UChicago grad student and paper co-author, described the paste smell as similar to rotten peanut butter, which she attributed to a large concentration of carbon. The paste is then dissolved with acid until only stardust is left, and the age of each grain extracted is calculated by measuring the amount of gas that they contained as a result of cosmic ray exposure. 
The cosmic rays can split silicon atoms and cause them to release neon or helium gas, which is then trapped in the grain. Stardust that has been around for longer and has had longer to encounter cosmic rays is therefore going to have developed more trapped gas. Therefore, when the pre-solar, pre-solar grains are melted by a laser in a micro-manipulator, scientists can measure the gases they release and estimate their ages from that information. The pre-solar grains from this meteorite are silicon carbide, which is a compound made of silicon and carbon, and analysis of the silicon isotopes present in the oldest 7.5 billion-year-old grain indicated that it was formed during a star's red giant phase. Analysis of these grains has confirmed that stars do not actually form at a constant rate in our universe. A majority of the grains in this study were formed during a period of enhanced star formation relative to the current rate. Finally, this team of scientists will continue to analyze the solar grains extracted from this meteorite and are expecting to find 50 to 100 large grains to analyze. And they also plan to extract new grains from another meteorite, which fell in Costa Rica in 2019. Uh, I also wanted to talk about a new note-sharing platform that's been launched on campus. UChicago fourth-years Adit Demadaran and third-year Joe Barouche have developed a new online app called NoteShare, which aims to make a collaborative space for students to share their lecture notes. The idea for the app came to the duo when they were working together on a P-set for a math course, and they discovered that their lecture notes from class were not entirely comprehensive or they were missing information. Other students expressed similar sentiments from a lot of other classes. So, in response to this problem, NoteShare aims to help students by providing a venue to compare and share their lecture notes. Students who upload lecture notes will receive a token for every set of notes they contribute, as long as the notes are approved by moderators for their quality. Tokens are then able to be exchanged for a folder of their classmates' notes for that day's lecture, the previous class's lecture, or the next class's lecture. The program is currently being piloted for three courses in econ, physics, and chemistry, and the the developers hope to establish whether reaching out to students or professors will result in higher student registration through their pilot program. Awesome. Uh, Isaac, you've got a story about the university and its purchase of a famous store, right? Right. So the University of Chicago bought the property occupied by Jewel Osco on 61st and Cottage Grove for about $20 million. Crane's Chicago business first reported on Tuesday that the university, uh, through the publication described a venture connected to the university, made the $19.8 million purchase back in November. Crane's also reported that East Chicago financed the purchase with a loan of $14.8 million. UChicago spokesperson Gerald McSwiggan told the Maroon V email that Jewel Osco would continue to operate under its 20-year-long term lease to the grocery's parent company, Albertsons. The Jewel Osco became the first full-service grocery store in Woodlawn in over 40 years when it opened on March 7th, ending the neighborhood's lack of easy access to fruits and vegetables. The store provided a good return to investors, according to comments by Deal Through Realty Managing partner Leon Walker to Cranes. According to Cranes, the Jewel Osco has created over 200 full-time and part-time jobs for the residents of Woodlawn. And the University of Chicago's acquisition of Jewel Osco is part of a wave of investor and development interest in the Woodlawn area, including the university's own upcoming study hotel, due in part to the proposed Obama Presidential Center in Jackson Park. However, the surge in development has also raised concerns over potential gentrification and displacement of residents due to rising housing costs. Jewel Osco joins Trader Joe's on 55th and Lake Park Avenue as grocery options in Hyde Park that occupy university-owned properties.
On a related note, uh, Isaac was just mentioning the Obama Presidential Center, and there was actually uh, a recent forum uh, that took place this past Tuesday about the Obama Center for Community Benefits Agreement, CBA, where the 20th Ward Alderman Jeanette Taylor spoke. Uh, Taylor expressed anger and frustration with the city government because it halted progress on the original CBA ordinance that she and Alderman Leslie Hairston introduced in July. So what did the ordinance contain? So the ordinance would establish stricter affordable housing requirements and create a community trust fund, amongst other changes with the creation of the Obama Presidential Center. Taylor explained that if the city's plan did not align with hers, then she would, quote, organize to kill it. But one of the key differences between Taylor's plan and the city's plan is its non-commitment to set aside a portion of new development that would occur with the OPC for affordable housing. The forum preceded the Woodlawn Community Open House that took place this past Thursday, and the Open House was part of an effort to collect the opinions of residents about development plans of the Obama Presidential Center. Uh, to finish us off, we have a special guest. Yeah, hey guys. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm here to talk briefly about the Maroons reporting this past week, the Maroons feature reporting. You may have seen it. Um, in your social media feeds, it's a lot. Um, but a lot of the reporting centers around a series of leaked faculty senate documents that was given to the Maroon um, surrounding the idea of faculty governance and how the administration has been increasingly closed off, not only to undergraduates, I'm sure most of us as undergraduates understand that like the administration's not open to us, but also to faculty members um, and basically, the reporting goes through this growing sentiment and disdain and distrust between some faculty members, a lot of faculty members, and the administration, the central administration. This reporting is timely because of a leaked letter that was given to President Zimmer, undersigned by over 100 faculty members, discussing the administration's dealings with graduate student funding um, for those of you who are unaware, there are broad changes to graduate student funding during last quarter made without virtually any input from faculty. Um, as the letter details, the only you know, faculty members in the divisions who were affected, who were aware of these changes, were the deans themselves, and they were uh, sworn to secrecy by the administration, quote-unquote. So this letter was recently handed to Zimmer. Um, this letter got leaked along with the, you know, meetings from the faculty senate, uh, the body who is you know in charge of being the being the representative for faculty to the central administration. Um, and as you go through the reporting, it's a lot. So be careful. It's a long, long read. Um, you'll just see a series of cases of administration continuing to ignore faculty input on issues, not seek out faculty input, um, and things of this nature. For more details on the developments of this, of these series of future stories, you should yeah. first, you should first check out the articles on the Maroon, and then uh, and keep an eye out for a special report uh, that Pod will likely make. 
All right, that's all we have for you guys this week. Uh, as always, I'm Ron. I'm Isaac. I'm Ruth. And I'm Matthew. Thanks to our special guest for coming in today. <laughs> hey, guys. <laughs> Bye, guys. <laughs> you never right. names yourself once. Catch you next time. <laughs> <laughs>